Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with sports super agent Adam Katz. All right, let's do this. And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone. And today on the program, I sit down with a man that's been a big part of the Boone family for the last 25 years. He's a sports agent, obviously specializes in baseball. He's been representing athletes for the last 37 years. He's currently the executive vice president at Wasserman Sports Agency. Ladies and gentlemen, my agent, Adam Katz. Adam, thanks for coming on the program. Glad to be with you, Brett. Thanks for inviting me. I really appreciate it. When you meet somebody for the first time and you tell them you're a, you're a sports agent, what's the most overwhelming question you get? Well, first off, when I meet people, I'll tell them I'm a lawyer and won't tell them I'm a sports agent. That's first. But if it comes out, the first thing they, I guess the most prevalent, thing would be Jerry Maguire, I think. I think that's it. And then they start moving into what's it like? What do you do every day? How's this guy? How's that guy? That sort of thing. Adam Katz is a kid growing up. What was a young Adam Katz? I know you're a hoopster. Uh, I know your dad was a lawyer. You ended up following in his footsteps. Take me through. Just give me a snapshot of Adam Katz childhood. Well, I, I loved playing basketball. I was decent at it, and but I knew I wasn't going to be, you know, I wasn't going to go beyond <laughs> maybe a good high school or small college type of player. So um, my dad was a lawyer. My uncles were all, other was on his way to law school. So I just knew that that's what I wanted to do. And, um, you know, It's sort of interesting. I don't know if a lot of people know this, but my dad was Tom Rich's lawyer. Tom Rich, I guess we'll get into a little bit later in the podcast, was one of the pioneers in the whole sports agency business. But he had an entrepreneurial side outside of sports. And my father was a small town, really small town lawyer. And Tom didn't like big city lawyers because they were too expensive. So we found my dad in this tiny little Pennsylvania town. So I was exposed to the sports agency business at 11 or 12 years old when uh, Tom took me to where the Phillies played. You'll remind me the name of that stadium, Brett. What was it? Veterans Veterans, Stadium. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And introduced me to Doc Ellis. And uh, Doc Ellis was like this profoundly powerful presence. And he took me into the clubhouse and introduced me to all the great pirates. And this must have been 71 or 72. And I'm like, my goodness, there's a field of law where you get to be involved with baseball players and do this. And Doc treated me like family. He introduced me as his cousin. And that's a stretch. If you know what Doc looks like and you know what I look like. And that's what was, you know, the, where the, everything generated and germinated for me was Doc Ellis in the early 70s with Tom. As a kid, I, I know, you know, because you've, you've worn me out about your, your hoop ability. Uh, for the record, people listen to the Boone podcast. Adam and myself have never squared up on the, uh, <laughs> on the basketball court. But was baseball an interest for you as a kid? I mean, did you follow the game? Did you have a favorite team? Did you, did you have a favorite player in, in whatever sport? No, I was a basketball junkie, but a, I loved baseball. And even I lived halfway between Philly and Baltimore in this really Amish community in small-town Pennsylvania. And I was sort of contrarian. And everybody was Phillies, and I gravitated toward the Orioles. And was a Frank Robinson, Brooks Robinson, Don Buford, Chico Simone, Quayar Palmer, McNally, all of them. 
So I just, I loved baseball, never even played Little League. I was a basketball tennis guy. But as you know, when you play sports, you love all sports. I love competing and participating. So even though I never once picked up, you know, I never played Little League. I loved baseball from a really small childhood age. I know you went to Dickinson College and, and Notre Dame Law. Um, everyone wants, you, you mentioned Jerry Maguire. Everybody wants to, everybody that's seen the movie, they want to be a cast member after that movie came out. I mean, I mean one, of the, one of the all-time greats. I love that movie, but they want to either be the agent, the player, or the general manager. So you're going to school. Is this in your mind when you're going to school? What kind of student were you? I was an ordinary student until my senior year in college, and then I started taking it serious and then became sort of a good student. But I had it in my head, uh, you know, repeat it. Ever since Doc Ellis and knowing that the sports agency industry existed and, you know, I wasn't going to be a professional athlete by any stretch, so I, I, I had my eye on it and sort of knew I was going to go to law school. And it was on my mind that when I got out of law school, I was going to write Tom a hundred letters and call him a thousand times, which I did. And that's how it started. Went to Notre Dame Law, pretty prestigious uh, law school. Did you go to school with anybody I'd know? Anybody famous? It's a long list. Congressmen, Supreme Court justices, Adam Katz, lawyer slash yeah, well, sports agents. There's some famous folks that I didn't know. Uh, I think Supreme Court Judge Amy Comet, Coney Barrett was there or was teaching, I think, when I was there um, or after I left. And we had a we had a reunion at our of our 20 favorite Notre Dame law buddies. And we actually rented her house five or six years ago. And I guess the most notable guy from my class is chairman of Bank of America. That's Brian Moynihan. He's the most notable, remarkable guy from my class. You mentioned Tom Rich. And, and uh, for those of you listening, Tom Rich is, was Adam's partner originally, uh, was, was my original agent before I even met Tom. Uh, there's a big history. Tom has recently passed away. And uh, but he had a big impact on the game of base, uh, the game of baseball and not not just from the agent side, but he was very involved with the union back in, back in the early days of, of sports agents. But I'm going to let Adam talk about that a little bit. You're coming out of you're coming out of law school in 84 and you mentioned uh, you'd written Tom 100, 100 letters and you were waiting for that call. Tom was the first. Uh, first guy that gave you a job. Talk about 84, you retiring from uh, Notre Dame Law. Well, I got, first of all, those kids at Notre Dame were so dazzling and smart, and I knew that I didn't want to compete against them in the legal world because I just felt overmatched, to be candid. So uh, that reinforced my decision to try and connect with Tom. I actually called... Uh, Larry Fleischer, who was a, a MBA agent at the time, because I grew up in the same small town as Sam Bowie, and I, and, and I had no idea if Sam Bowie would ever let me work for him, but I said, hire me and I'll try and get Sam Bowie for you. And he said, I got nothing for you. And then he actually ended up representing Sam Bowie, Larry Fleischer did. But I just got out and knew I didn't want to be competing against these Notre Dame kids they were so strong and I knew the sports agency thing existed. So, and I also knew that Tom had uh, fought battles for black and Hispanic players that paved the way for all of us these days. So back then, Brett, I know, I think you know this story, the same black and Hispanic player with the exact same numbers was earning significantly less money than the white counterpart. And Tom literally got into fights and, uh, you know, he changed the whole paradigm and battled for Joe Morgan and Pasquale Perez and Tony Pena and Dave Parker and, you know, 
early guys and changed the whole system and created equity for blacks and Hispanics. And that was a appeal to me. And I just literally begged him for a job, told him he didn't have to pay me, which he didn't, by the way, maybe $100, $100 bills out of his pocket for the first two or three years, I was not on payroll. I was just $100 bills out of his pocket. He spent more money on champagne than he did on me and sort of found my way with Tim Raines. I'm not sure if you knew that, but Tim Raines and I got very close and I started making myself important and necessary for Tom to have around. While I got a quick second, want to give a shout out to DraftKings. We've partnered with DraftKings now, and they are the official sponsor of the Boone Podcast. Dan? Thanks, Brett. The moment we've been waiting for since September is finally here. In honor of the big game, DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of Super Bowl 56, is giving new customers 56 to 1 odds on either team. Bet just $5 and get 280 in free bets if your team wins. DraftKings Sportsbook is now live in New York, meaning you can bet from almost a third of the country. If Sportsbook isn't in your state yet, play DraftKings Daily Fantasy Football Contests for Super Bowl 56. New customers can get a free shot at a $1 million top prize with their first deposit. Now that is my kind of deal. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app, use promo code BOONE, B-O-O-N-E, and get 56 to 1 odds on either team. Bet just $5 and get 280 in free bets if your team wins. That's promo code BOONE, B-O-O-N-E, at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of Super Bowl 56. 21 plus minimum age and location requirements vary by jurisdiction. See DraftKings.com slash sportsbook for full list of requirements and state-specific responsible gaming resources. Void where prohibited. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In Tennessee, call or text the TN Redline 1-800-889-9789. In Connecticut, call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat. In New York, call 877-8-HOP. E-N-Y or text H-O-P-E-N-Y 467-369. And now back to my interview with Adam Katz. You know, it's such an interesting story and I've heard the stories. Obviously, I met Tom uh, when he was a seasoned veteran in, in the sports agent world. Um, but I hear a lot of stories and a lot of them from you. And he was kind of one of the pioneers. And, and on this podcast, I've had several uh, players that, you know, before sports agents really became a thing in baseball, you know, Reggie Jackson talked about it, Vita Blue, Raleigh Fingers in the 60s. And the, the most interesting story that that sticks in my mind when it comes to sports agent is is my grandpa. And, you know, him well, um, <laughs> because I remember, I think maybe me and you were were well, not me and you, but we were negotiating a, a contract with the Seattle Mariners, and and Gramps was kind of on the outside looking in, and, and and he would tell me stories about what it was like for him. And I was coming to, I, I led the league in RBIs that year. Well, my grandpa led the league in RBIs one year, and he and he told me the story. He said, "Brett, tell you what, you know the difference between when I read uh, led the league in RBIs is." I went into my my owner because we didn't have agents back then. And he said, hey, I need a big, big raise here. I led the league in RBIs. And I guess whoever the owner was at the time said, Ray, we can finish in fourth place without you leading the league in RBIs. And I think Gramps got like a twenty five hundred dollar bump. So we're talking those days in the early 50s compared to where we're at now in these these three hundred and four hundred million dollar contracts. But but you could probably speak to it better than I can. And how did this profession come to be? Well, I guess, you know, it it tracks back to the mid seventies and the reserve clause and Andy Messersmith and Kurt flood and Dave McNally and several others. We don't need to do a history lesson for everybody, but Marvin Miller uh, was a, a, you know, an extraordinary union leader who got who bargained for and battled for you know at great cost for uh, free agency and that changed the landscape and allowed players to start sharing in the 
you know, in the cash pool. There was a lot of money in this industry and owners were making money and franchise values were going higher and higher and higher and players were not sharing to the extent that they should. And that's, that's where it started. And, you know, it's a union leadership in the mid seventies. You know, when, uh, as a player and, and our relationship, the player agent relationship, uh, is, is usually a really good one. And, you know, definitely you're there when that contract gets signed and you get that deal worked out. You know, we're the first one to come give you a big hug. But perception wise, you know, and, it, and it's kind of, it's a misnomer, but you hear it out there from the fans. And they like to say, uh, sports agents, they ruin the sport. They ruin the game. It's all about money. What do you say to the people out there that say that about sports agents? Well, that's interesting. You know, you could fit every baseball player worth representing in my modest little home here in West L.A. So there's not a lot of baseball players to represent. So it's very competitive to just be in the business and much less to have 10, 15, 20, 30 players. So it does not draw the greatest uh, group of people all the time. So the perception that agents are this, that, and the other, sometimes I feel like that too, but there are, there are room for great agents that are honorable and have integrity and battle within the rules. And, you know, we like to consider ourselves over at Washman, one of those, one of those guys. We're going to go back to the early days, Adam Katz. Uh, you're, you're under the tutelage of Tom Rich and, uh, you know, like you said, he's giving you $100 bills out of his pockets. You're not on the payroll. When you finally get to that point where who's who's the first player you signed and how'd you go about that? Are you calling them? Are you are you targeting who you want? Uh, what's the criteria for Adam Katz in, in taking on a well, in the be- In the beginning, shoot, I was driving around Tom's girlfriend, who was a famous model. I think she was the first cover girl in the, uh, for Nagzi, I forget what cover girl is, but it was a big thing. And her name was Jennifer O'Neill and she was in the movie summer of 42. And that was Tom's girlfriend. So in the beginning, my highest use was driving Jennifer around playing tennis with Tom and just being there and listening and keeping my mouth shut and doing what was asked. And then Tim Raines and I, my basketball Gills got me on the basketball floor with Tim and then we became super close and Tim was like this charismatic player that not only in, uh, popular on Montreal, he was popular league wide. So if I was next to and shoulder to shoulder with Tim Raines, then young players would be, well, that's a guy I want to meet. So that turned into Ken Caminiti and Casey Candell and Ruben Amaro. It just turned into young players through Tim Raines. You remember that first negotiation? Well, the first ones I sat in a second seat and kept my mouth shut. And then all of a sudden, my first one was... um, I got thrown into the fire with some reds. It may have been like Kent Tacolvi and Joe Price and Tom Hume and some of those early red guys. Brett, you know those guys, I think. Tommy Hume was uh, a uh, well. I grew up. I grew up watching him. Tommy Hume was uh, was a coach on on our staff when I played in Cincinnati. Right. So I got thrown into the fire early um, in my mid-20s. So can I remember the exact first one? I can't. But it had to have been uh, Lance Parrish and Kent Colby and Enos Cabell, those kind of guys early, early on. Doing my research on Adam Katz, I know a lot about you, but I don't know everything. I saw this as a quote from you. You consider yourself a lawyer who works for the players, where people skills are the most important part of the job. That that kind of transcends not only being a lawyer, being a sports agent. That's that's kind of what the successful people in life, those people skills. Um, what's the best part of your job? 
It's relationships. For me, it's always been, you know, I'm, I'm not a, a particularly effective negotiator for myself when I'm out buying a car or a house or anything. But when I am advocating for my players, it's I want to do a great job for my colleagues. I want to do a great job for the industry. I want to do a great job for the player that I like. When I have a player, I like to have a close personal relationship with them so that we do it together and succeed together and, you know, have excellent results together. So that's the best part for me, like being the best version of me I can be for my clients and my colleagues. Toughest part, biggest challenge. The biggest challenge there's some challenges. This is fierce. We go back to how competitive it is, Brett. You could fit every player worth representing in your house and the, the first floor of your house. So it's so competitive. So it can be, you know, that's no secret. It can be corrupt. And so many people want to be in this business. And then there's a lot of stealing of players and trash talking and bad mouthing and nonsense so when you work hard to represent a player for four five six seven years and somebody swipes them for no good reason that's unpleasant and again unpleasant for you personally unpleasant for your colleagues and unpleasant consequence industry-wide so that's my least favorite part of this and the interesting part of what you do for me is a lot of times you, 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 you might get a client at age 18, 19, 20 years old, and that relationship could last until he's 50, 60 years old. Um, you know, the dynamic of the of the relationship, it's you and client, a kid maybe in double A, triple A, and then all of a sudden he's a retired Hall of Fame player and, and you still have that relationship the players change and, and I don't mean players in the literal sense. I, I mean, it becomes, it goes from the parents of the, of the young kid that, that just signed his contract to now it becomes wives. Now it becomes other family members. It's a big dynamic, that family dynamic. How does that change from you with the clients you've had that you've got at a young age and you still have that relationship long after they're done playing? How is, how has that changed for you? And, and what do you see in those relationships? Well, there's nothing I can do. I'm not 25, 35, 45 anymore. There's nothing I can do about it. So time ticks along. But like a perfect example of that would be I, I signed through Tim Raines. I got to know Delino DeShields, who's one of my favorite guys I've ever worked. One of my favorite guys, period. I just love Delino. He was so interesting, so smart, really good player, misunderstood was a great basketball player, by the way. I don't know if you knew that. But that was just an interesting representation thing for me because of the, the way Delano conducted himself and what kind of guy it was. So then when he was finished, you know, he got into coaching and stayed in the game, and he's with the Reds right now. He works with our good friend David in Cincinnati, as you know, right, Brett? David and Bell. I worked for – Right. And I worked for who I also worked for when he played, but, um, and another great guy, by the way, um, interesting guy, but now, you know, I used to carry Delino's son. I, my, the joke in the family is I used to carry Lino around in my pocket, but I represented him from draft day till today. So that's, you know, that's just family and a, and a, a joyous, you know, gratifying part of this business, Brett really is player agent general manager it can be complicated uh some clients are easier than others obviously some want to be more hands-on some just get out of the way and let you do your job um oh yeah that's a fact my goodness yes, give sir. me the, give me give me the give me the good bad and the ugly of that and now that i've had time to reflect you know and i'm 52 years old and and uh you know, you knew me. Well, wow. When did when did we get together? Right right around 2000. So I was about 30. Uh, I was in the middle of my career in, in my in my prime. And uh, I, I tend to forget. I You know, we can all look well, back on on previous us. But were, how is how is I have to how is I to deal with? 
you were reason you were smart and prepared and knowledgeable and forceful but super reasonable and you know you you were reachable and 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 if you we never had a cross word if you recall and we had some tough moments you take back to that mariner negotiation that <laughs> when they pushed it across the table i remember that. that pardon me sir i remember when they uh sitting there yourself uh, me and Tom walked into the room and they were on the other side of the table and they, they kind of formally like pushed a a uh, a contract offer across the table that the three of us, it wasn't even close to what we were asking for. And I, I do remember that it was kind of a I don't know, it was kind of I was a fish out of water because that 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 wasn't my stage. But uh, OK, go ahead. Well, when, when I interrupted you. No, when you're negotiating, if it's the object of the other side to make you wince, they made us wince. But but back to you, you were you were a delight to work for. You were tough and prepared and knowledgeable. So I had you had to be alert and prepared and knowledgeable to work for you. But you were a delight and perfectly reasonable. And we never I don't recall any issues. You can tell me if we had one, but I don't think we did. Do you uh what are, what are some of the, the, the rough and you don't need to, I'm not looking for a name here, but what, what's the, what's the other side of that pendulum that, okay, you have well, the dream you were, client, you, were, you have the dream client and then you have the other side of the pendulum. Like, wow. And it's yeah, just that phone rings and you, and you wits. The spectrum of is on the one hand, you got a guy like Willie McGee. I'll give you that name. Who's another unbelievably good guy. Willie would call you when it was time to do his contract. He would tell you what was important to him, what he wanted. And that was that. And I still stay close to Willie and love him dearly. But he was like on that side of the spectrum. On the other side of the spectrum, and some of these guys will will remain nameless, but you're dealing with this, with shipping the dogs from here to there. You're dealing with, uh, family issues. You're dealing with every lots of economic issues. You're dealing with substance stuff. You're dealing with a ton of stuff on a daily basis, and it's a heavy lift. And I always viewed that as opportunity to work, get along good with the guys. So and I'm not complaining, but some guys were a little bit of a heavier lift than others. Negotiation. Uh, wh- what do you think is the key to a successful negotiation? Who goes first? And and for the most part in that in the world of Major League Baseball, are the talks civil? Well, for me, they are. And I come from a negotiating. You know, I'm not. I don't do it like everybody. So I'm not a guy that asks for double what I want and tick down. I try to figure out, identify what I want that's rationally based and reasonable but a reasonable stretch that will make the other side win and bargain from there and i always think it's important and if this is uh, underplayed and undervalued but for me being credible and honest and consistent is the key to being an effective negotiator well, it makes sense when that general manager, when they pick up the phone, if you keep that consistency, they're going to trust you when you call instead of, oh, what's he what's he running up the flagpole this time? Um, interesting to me. And this is, you know, when we first met and, and it was uh, Rich Katz and Landis. Now your your partner is Joel Wolf over there at Wasserman. Um, correct me if way, I'm wrong. The on, best agent in the, in the, by the way, the best agent in the business him up in my mind at this point he's terrific go ahead um and correct me if i'm wrong on this but i do remember it was 2000 uh we were having our talks i'd talk to you i'd talk to tom and i was a free agent and that was at a time where you remember that that particular point in time where there weren't you know, it wasn't a free agent frenzy i remember the big free agents that year were were uh Bonds, Moises Alou, I believe uh, the slugger for Texas Rangers who had just come off a really big year. And there was there was like six or seven offers 
to the four Juan of Gonzalez? us. Juan Gonzalez, yes. And there there was right. like seven offers to the to the four players, the entire free agency. And I remember talking, how do you guys strategize about this? Now we know Tom had a relationship that went deep with the New York Yankees. But when it came down to negotiating with Seattle, it was Adam Katz that kind of took over. Was that a good cop, bad cop thing that you do with with your with your partner? Is is that a kind of a, a normal part of the business? Well, some, I don't think we did that. We did matchups, Brett. So Tom had a close relationship, a, a unique and special relationship with George. Uh, so he was going to do Yankee stuff. Uh, he was close with Bowden, so you might catch Tom doing. But otherwise, at that stage, I was doing most of them. If Tom didn't have a special and interesting and unique relationship, it was going to be me. And if you may recall that I had a uh, a good working relationship with Chuck, our buddy Chuck Armstrong. You recall, Brett? Yes, I do. I do. Yeah. So, um so I got Mariner detail. I got most detail. Tom got some interesting ones because of long-standing close relationships. But at that stage, I was doing most of them. And that brings me back when you talk about the beginning. And you, you said your job basically was it was driving Tom's girlfriend around, playing tennis with Tom, and just kind of learning the ropes. Uh, a, uh, a guy that's a part of both of our lives, and especially late in my career, Nick Chinook, who you talk about is glowing and he is a stud. Nick was, was Nick kind of the Adam Katz of 1984? Cause when I met him, you, it, Nick was a guy that was flying in. He was making sure the client, uh, the client was okay. You know, Nick's like a cool kind of hip guy, especially back then. He was really cool and really young. Uh, now he's kind of right. moved into his own. He's represent uh, Washerman under Adam Katz and, and Nick Chinook. They're representing my son, Jacob Boone. Uh, talk a little bit to Nick, because uh, I think he's he's a real important part of, of your world. And, uh, you know, hopefully he's going to be a big part of our world when it comes to Jake Boone. Right. Well, there's no Joel Wolf or Adam without Nick. We're that he's just terrific and he's everything Adam Katz was in the mid eighties and significantly more. He's like very bright. He played baseball at Haverford. He's like got every single tool and he's a dazzling agent representative in his own right. Right now, like right now he's terrific. He um, took care of Javi Baez and uh, in Detroit and Jose Barrios. And he's, He's like a, a star in the industry. In my judgment, he's as good as there is also. Terrific. You mentioned Timmy Raines. Uh, Bartolo Colon was a client. Omar Vizquel, Willie McGee, you mentioned. Some of my favorite guys. Caminiti, uh, Chili Davis, Mo Vaughn, another one of my favorite teammates of all time. Uh, and he passed away recently. Tony Fernandez, one of my top, top teammates of all time. Uh, you've represented all these guys through the years. And we can't forget Sammy Sosa. If, if I were to pick a, a year of your career uh, to go through with a client, I want to take me back to that 1998 season. It's Sammy. It's Mac. Uh, Adam's the liaison. Adam's, Adam's Sammy's, Sammy's agent. Because I remember back then, you know, I, I got a little interaction with Sammy and I knew we were both represented by Rich and, and Katz. Uh, take me through that 98 year and and that that had to be the ultimate ride and ultimate chaos, you know, good and the bad that come with it. It was, man. Well, first of all, we were pregnant with my kid. And Sammy was an interesting guy. He was not the most loved all the time. It was his music in the clubhouse. And, you know, he had a, moved around with an entourage. So he had some, you know, wasn't always smooth sailing with his teammates. But Sammy was always a great competitor, super loyal and loving to me and Tom, and reliable and... If you may recall that baseball was in trouble and that McGuire Sosa thing just generated such white hot butt and traveling around with Sammy was like traveling around with Elvis. 
And it wasn't always the most pleasant thing in the world because, you know, you get it. But it was like, uh, it was wild. And I was, I'm grateful I got to be a part of it. No doubt about it. Yeah, it's <laughs> your personality traveling around in that uh, in that atmosphere doesn't strike me. That's your cup of tea. It, Tommy, Tommy being in that atmosphere, going city to city, and it's a a party everywhere everywhere you go. That that seems more up his alley. But um, current guys you represent: Maeda, Guriel, Kenley Jansen, and. Um, yeah, you know, I was I was thinking about the the relationship and and trying to to compare and contrast. As I sit back once again, you know, as a retired player, fifteen years, um, I finally realized what it was like for for my dad and my grandfather uh, when I was coming up in the game, watching me, how they reacted to it. At the time, I, I never understood it. I thought it's not a big deal. Uh, you know, this is what I do, dad. You know, why are you so excited? Grandpa, why are you just so excited? Now that I have a son that's playing, I get it. I understand. It's almost like I'm more nervous than when I was a player uh, watching him. And, it, and it's a joy for the most part. But on the agent side of things, what's it like for you uh, when you're watching your guys? Well, I can't watch pictures. I just can't. <laughs> So I, I turn off when pitchers go, any, any of the Wasserman guys, it's just too, for some reason, I can watch Kenley because I know I'm going to have to talk to Kenley after the game, but I, you know, I'm just like you, you care so deeply for the guys. You normally know their families and it's close personal relationships. And you just, you just, it's like your kids or your family, you just want them to succeed. And when they do, you're thrilled. And when they don't you turn off the TV and try and shake it off. So you know how it goes. It's great when it goes good, and it's unpleasant when guys, and you definitely don't want to see guys get hurt. Oh, man. And, and I think, too, uh, and somebody that could probably, you know, my dad or my mom, when, when Aaron and myself were playing, uh, you know, they, they, if, if we were matched up, it's like, who do you pull for? For Adam Katz, lead, uh, uh, Jansen, Kenley Jansen's face and Guriel. You care, or are you just looking for something positive on both sides? Well, I'm, I'm hoping that there's nobody on base and it's a, it's a single, the right field, and <laughs> no harm, no foul. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you hope just like you think you might hope. That's it. Uh, the game, the, the, the sports agent game. Since you broke in '84, how's it changed, and what has Sabermetrics done to the marketplace? Well, there used to be—that's a great question. There used to be a in when I started and was tagging around with Tom and chasing Bob Quinn and Sid Thrift and Jack McKeon and. There was a broad spectrum. You could sell a player's character. You could sell a player's clubhouse presence. You could sell this and that and the other. And there was more latitude to sell like that. With, with the advent of analytics and metrics, they're smarter. They're more prepared. And there's less room to sell like that. But there's still some. I'll tell you one interesting thing, Brett, if I have one second on this, is when you came up, do you remember, and this is because analytics and metrics weren't dominating at that point, there was always 32, 33, 34, 35-year-old veterans in your clubhouse that helped guide the clubhouse. And today there's less of that, and that's a costly impact of metrics and analytics. It's, uh, you know discouraging and upsetting for me and on lots of levels. So for example, that 35 year old veteran, let's pick Casey Candell, one of my favorite players. He hung around forever. They helped bring along young people, teach them what the, the importance of how to play, how to conduct themselves, the importance of the union and what came before them. And that's not as prevalent as it used to be. That's a big cost in my judgment. 
Well, it better get prevalent. We're in a lockout right now. Um, I had Donald Fear a few months ago. I had him on the program. And, and you know, I went through it in 94 as the assistant rep for the Cincinnati Cincinnati Reds. And, and I went through Bud Sealing, canceling the World Series, and I got educated on the process. Um, what's going on right now, best of your knowledge? Well, it's again, it's not like it was back then. Back then – um, Tom and Randy Hendricks and let me have to dig back here. Um, uh, Ron Shapiro, uh, the, a gentleman named Antanasio. They, there was like three, four, five agents that were very engaged and involved with the players union in that process. And I think that it was useful. And first of all, it was a great second seat for me to be in what I, what I saw and what I learned was invaluable, but it's different today. And I I don't necessarily blame the union for not wanting the interference of agents so much. They're trying to conduct a intricate, sophisticated negotiation and self-promoting agents is the last thing they need interfering in that. So it's different in that respect. Back then we were almost had a collateral seat at the table, Brett. You know that you were mm-hmm. there, but today it's not quite like that. So it's, we're a little bit less looped in, although we're, they communicate very well. They ask for our involvement much, much less. What are the agents right now telling their clients with the, with the uh, current situation going on in major league baseball? Well, that it's, you know, it's not the best related, no secret of air. It's not the best relationship. It's not the most trusting. We came to this mistrusting place. Honestly, it's, it's 60 years of this. So it's, we came to this place, uh, honestly. So everybody needs to be alert and knowledgeable and listen. And of course, cohesive. There's no effective negotiation in anything, whether you're a steel worker or a longshoreman or a screen actors guild. There's no such thing as a good effective negotiation unless you have cohesion with the constituents. So that's, that's what we're all working on. And for me, you know, I'm usually an optimist when, when uh, looking at these situations, I was always an optimist as a player to the, until the day that Sealy pulled the plug, went to the podium and, and canceled the World Series, unbeknownst to us, the players at the time. Uh, but I always, I, I always find myself that way. I'm always an optimist and, and I always think the best. And I always think there's no way with the amount of the money and amount of money in the game right now and, and the, the money that the players are making, uh, the amount of revenue that the owners are bringing in, the way it's it's the game is growing and it's becoming a worldwide game. Um, I, I think certainly they will come to a con- conclusion and get something done. That being said, I'm not in the rooms right now, so I'm not privy. You know, my best guess of what's going on is, yeah, the players want a little bit more of a, you know, a little more uh, a bump in the minimum salary. Ah, no problem. That could be worked worked out. Um, yeah. You know, the arbitration. The owners want to stay at that status quo. Players want a bump. I don't see that happening. Uh, and and I just see when you when you speak to the mistrust, it's it, the manipulating player service time. I know that's a big cog in the wheel for players, and it, and it was for me when I was playing. You know, that's something that. If a player deserves to be there, he deserves to be there. The tanking they talk about to, to get the draft pick. Uh, but I think the other things are, are pretty simple. You know, the players want a higher ce- or the players want a higher ceiling on that tax threshold. I think the owners are willing to move there. Uh, it's just what is that number? You know, we can go on and on the postseason. I think the owners are at 14 players are at 12. There's a b- deal to be had there. But going through the game and, and talking to the to the guys you know, quote unquote, in the know now that the, the insiders, uh, I'm getting a real pessimistic feeling from from the guys that are really close to the game, guys that people lean on, you know, for, for that breaking news and and firsthand information. Um, how are you feeling about it? Well, uh, um, 
I have to unpack a lot of what you said. First off, we are like-minded and both natural optimists and think the game is great and healthy and growing. And um, it would be beyond bewildering to imagine that these two sides would jeopardize it. So we're like-minded like that. Um, you did a good analysis of what the issues are. I view the, the competitive, the competitive balance balance tax is going to be the big issue. It's currently sits in what two ten ish and the union wants it to be much higher. We want to get players paid a little bit earlier if possible. We want to deal with tanking if we can through some innovative draft rules, maybe some earlier free agency, but all those issues which I hope you're not going to make me get into the weeds on. They're all interwoven. They're all interrelated. And you're just going to have to have faith that they bargain in good faith and compromise and get there. And then finally, I'd I'd identify, I go very uh, fundamental and human. Deadlines matter. Whatever that deadline is, whether it's February 15th or April 15th or May 15th, you tell me when the deadline is. I don't know what it is. They do. That's when negotiations should heat up and get going in earnest, and we can hope this thing gets resolved. And you mentioned earlier, uh, you know, that 98 season with Sammy and and Mac, and a lot of people attribute that to the game coming back. Uh, That's four long years that we waited. And I remember um, because we started late in 95. And the and the crowd, we uh, my particular team, the Reds that year, we went to the postseason, and and the the crowds were sparse. And I remember that I'm thinking, this is Cincinnati, you know, the the big red machine, and and they're supposed to be the greatest fans in the world, and they're not showing up, and we're playing the Dodgers, you know, one series away from going to the World Series. It wasn't the Cincinnati fans, it wasn't the Reds. It was the temperature of the game then. The fans were pissed off when when we went on strike and then ended up canceling the World Series. And you're right. They didn't come back till 98 when when Sammy and Matt kind of put the game on their shoulders and had that unbelievable showdown through that season. But that's four long years. I look at the game now. You know, we went through the COVID. We went through the 60 days. Uh, or the 60 game schedule. I think Major League Baseball did a great job. I think they they did the best they could with a, with a bad situation. I think you had an exciting postseason. Eventually, the the Dodgers were crowned, and and I thought they did a great job. I think fans looked at that and said, "Hey, they're doing the best job they can." If something happens here, and I and I'm this is just me, and this is just my opinion. Even if that. It, season gets pushed back and say, oh, we're only going to have 145 games instead of 160. I think a certain percentage of fans are gone right away. I think it's baseball. I think it's the great, I think it's the greatest game on earth. I think baseball will always rebound, but I'm worried as a fan of the game now that this could really be, if it doesn't start on time and we start losing a percentage of the season, it could do a lot of damage to this game. And and is there a Sammy Sosa, Mark McGuire story out there to bring the game back, you know, sooner than later? So as a fan, that's what I worry about. I was wondering if, if, if you think about those type of things. I do. And again, we're like-minded. I'm afraid, well, first of all, I have faith that the negotiators on both sides have a keen awareness and good memory of how costly 94 and 95 was to the game. And we were lucky to have something like McGuire and Sosa resuscitate. They really did. But I'm also afraid that a lot of people today don't remember that it was costly for a long time. After that works, that was a strike. That was not a uh, lockout. That was a strike, 94-95. But um, I, I, I'm like-minded with you again, Brett. I hope people will recognize how costly it is. And I'm hopeful that everybody at the table has a keen awareness of it and their objectives is to get this thing done and have pitchers and catchers report and get moving. We're just uh, uh, The optimist in me is hopeful. And let's hope that does get done. Um, if you could change one thing 
to make this game better, what would it be? Oh, my goodness. Dig down deep, Adam. Come on, cats. Yeah. I'm prepared to answer that question. I'd like I'd like less corruption <laughs> on my from my seat, my selfish seat, less corruption on my side and labor peace and um I'd like to hear what Theo has to say about how to improve the game and get uh young people involvement and inner city involvement moving. So things like that would be on high on my list. Adam Katz, it's been a pleasure. Uh, this was a lot of fun. Um, thanks so much for coming on. And uh, I think you gave a lot of perspective uh, to the fans out there, the Boone podcast of, of what it's like behind the scenes and the life of an agent uh, that that's not necessarily glorified, sometimes vilified. Thank you for coming on. What we do each and every Boone podcast at the end of the podcast is we give it back to the voice. Dan Levy, he's got a question from the fans. Dan? Mr. Katz, how you doing, sir? Hey, Dan, how you doing, man? Doing all right. All right, this this question comes from Phil in Missouri, and he wants to know, you have a lot of Boones on your roster. Who's your favorite? Yeah. Well, that's obvious. Well, that's not even that's not even close. <laughs> it's, 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 a, it's a battle and a tight race between Matthew and Savannah, and then Aaron, <laughs> a solid two, three, three, four. <laughs> that that works for me. That works on this podcast. Thanks for jumping on with us, sir. We appreciate it. All right. Thanks very much for having me, guys. I enjoyed it. Really appreciate it. All right, Brett, that's going to do it for the Brett Boone Podcast. My name is Dan Levy, the technical director and producer and the voice of the Boone Podcast. EP executive producer, Rich Herrera. Digital content gets done by Liz Landry. Please share the Boone Podcast with neighbors and friends. Make sure you subscribe to the Boone Podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. And while you're at it, give it a five-star rating and share your feelings about the Boone Podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. To follow Brett Boone on social media, he is at TheBoon29. You can follow me on Base On Air, B-A-S-S On Air. And for all of us here on the Boom Podcast, I'm Dan Levy. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Take care.